This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. I'm continuing my conversation with Officer Stacy Rourke, who is with the Spokane Police Department in eastern Washington state. And I'm welcoming a new guest to the conversation. In the previous episode, Officer Rourke and I talked about his 30-year career in law enforcement and his current role with the department's behavioral health unit, which uses a co-deployed model. Joining us is Jenny Mandon, who is a mental health professional with Frontier Behavioral Health. Jenny is the MHP who rides with Officer Rourke, and together they respond to persons in crisis. Officer Rourke, Jenny, welcome. Hello. Good morning, Abby. Thanks. Nice to see you again. I wanted to, for those who didn't get to have the benefit of hearing the our first conversation, Stacey, I did want to explain what the Behavioral Health Unit is. The Spokane Police Department Behavioral Health Unit is a co-deployed, so we ride together in the same car. We respond to uh, persons having a mental crisis, suicidal, if, say, if patrol has an assault or an, uh, just like a call we just were on, an assault where they felt that the person that was the aggressor was ha- just having a mental crisis, we went out and chatted with them and determined where we could, you know, if we could divert them from jail. That's our primary focus is to divert them from jail or the hospital. We can get them to a stabilization center. We can get them maybe into back reconnected with their counselor. That's where Jenny really shines is being able to make those connections. Well, you did say she was the star of the show, so (laughs) glad to have you. I've talked quite a bit about mental health professionals in this podcast, but never spoken to a mental health professional. So tell me, what is a mental health professional and what kind of training do you receive? A mental health professional is basically someone that's been certified to work with individuals with mental health mental health symptoms. So it really varies depending on education and position. It's a certification that allows you to, you know, treat, diagnose and create like treatment plans. But again, it's all education dependent. My specific MHP certification, I have my master's degree in social work. My MHP certification just allows me to work with individuals that are having some sort of mental health need. And so you could also be like a therapist who sees clients in a clinical setting. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then how did you start out? I, Officer Work had mentioned you, you, you had been doing outreach in LA with the homeless, homeless population. So give me a little background on you, how you started out and then how you got to this role. Yeah. So I've been in kind of the social work field for, I would say almost 10 years now. I've worked in Seattle for a nonprofit that served families experiencing homelessness, moved to Southern California and worked a couple of different jobs there. And really my first introduction to kind of this idea of mental health integrated into the law enforcement world was um, I worked for a nonprofit that serves the reentry population. So we would go into county jails and the whole idea was reducing recidivism. So getting people that were incarcerated, connected to um, services. So when they were released, they had a treatment plan in place. And then after grad school, I worked as a mental health specialist on a street-based outreach team that served those experiencing homelessness in LA County. And so then what drew you to this role in law enforcement? 
it, it, it had to have been kind of a new role, right? Because this kind of co co deployed, it's a it seems like a relatively new unit for police departments, so relatively new role for an MHP. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. It is a very new field. So I think everyone's kind of navigating the difference, like, you know, the deployed versus responder. It's an evolving concept. LA County has a team. So there would be times that we would be doing outreaches and, and encampments and see individuals, social workers that were paired with law enforcement. And so that was kind of my first introduction to it. I've got family in law enforcement. So it's always been something kind of in the back of my mind. And so just in looking for positions, I saw this and it was one of those where I was like, oh, that's a job I've been looking for and I didn't know I was looking for it. There you go. And how long have you, have you two been writing for two years then together? Stacey and I have been partnered for almost a year now. Let's talk about the how does it work? I mean, you literally like another police officer, the two of you, do you go to roll call or you just, you get in the car and you start looking for calls that seem to be ones that need your attention or? Uh, We start the day like most police officers do. We, we get coffee (laughs) and then um, we start looking at the screen and, and picking off, you know, figuring out which calls uh, if we do recognize a name with that call, we do have a separate computer kind of database that we do have follow-up calls. So, uh, you know, it just kind of depends if there's not a call load, then we do, we will have follow-up calls. And, you know, so I know you can't talk about people by name or anything, but the, the situation you were responding to today, the call that you just came back from, can you play that out for me? Like law enforcement patrol has responded they're seeing someone they think is in mental crisis and they think okay let's get the behavioral health unit here and then uh, jenny what who entered at what point do you interact with the subject the the biggest thing for before i speak to anyone is safety and then investigation so you know patrol needs to do the job that they're there to do like with today, we arrived, patrol had already done all of their investigating and we're just determining what needed to happen. And so that's when Stacy and I stepped in and talked to this individual. So what's the benefit of your, I mean, I, I can guess at it, but I'd like to hear you say, what's the benefit of your training in this or any situation that you get called to? The biggest thing is just understanding certain diagnoses and symptoms to look for. There are times where someone can present pretty stable, but the more you talk to them and ask certain questions, the more you can kind of pull out of them. I think understanding impacts of medication compliance and this individual was someone that is enrolled in services and I I could see when he last attended his, his medication appointment and so we can have like really direct conversations about that. And that's not something law enforcement can do. And that's one of the benefits of your... Yeah, our system allows us to, if someone's enrolled in services or has ever been hospitalized involuntarily, we can see that. And and that just kind of really opens the door into knowing what kind of questions, especially risk questions, to ask to get a full assessment done. And what are risk questions? So the big ones for us are 
you know, threat to self, threat to others, grave disabilities, whether they're able to care for themselves adequately or not. Medication compliance is a big one. You know, if there's a history of hospitalization, I can typically see the events that led up to that hospitalization, including symptoms and patterns of decompensation. Uh, And with that, you know, we can ask those specific questions. We can see kind of a pattern and and see if this person's on that same tra- trajectory to being hospitalized again, or if we can provide an intervention that stops that hospitalization from happening. In this case, so when he, he's not, this person is not taking their medication, what is it that you can do? You Do you have to take him somewhere or do you just tell him you need to get back on your plan? Yeah, you know, it really, it depends on the person. This individual, you know, he was taking his medications and um, oh, okay. he, he was very coherent. But if someone is not taking medication, one of the things we can do is try to get them into like a stabilization center where they can see a prescriber. We can reach out to their prescriber and see if uh, there's a refill that can be sent. We can provide transportation. We've done that before. We've given people rides to the pharmacy so they can pick up their medication. We can connect with family members who can help navigate that system. So there's a lot that we can do on a call to help someone get their medications. Uh, it just really depends on the need and severity level. Stacy, how does this change the playbook for law enforcement? This gives us a greater insight into why somebody is doing what they're doing. If we're talking to somebody and uh, we're not quite sure if there's a, like a grave disability, uh, having that professional opinion from Jenny really helps uh, whether we can do an ITA or not. ITA. Involuntary Treatment Act, the ITA. Uh, We can get them to the hospital, not voluntarily. Having that input from Jenny is very valuable because we can add that to our, the criteria and, and it helps them get the right diagnosis when they get to the emergency department. So uh, Jenny's assessment can help you decide if they need to be involuntarily committed. Correct. Yeah, there's 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 times where maybe we don't ask the right questions or the more time that I've spent working around Jenny as I'm getting those questions down. So there are days where if Jenny works with somebody else, I can ask those questions and it kind of gives me that much more insight uh, into kind of what's going on. So you're co-deployed. So you ride together. A co-responder is different in that the law enforcement officer arrives on scene and then calls for a an MHP to join. Yes. Correct. Yeah. The challenge there is time passes before that MHP can get there. I think being in the car and responding to active scenes, it allows me as a clinician the opportunity to see individuals in that heightened crisis. Because typically as a mental health person, you're responding after the crisis. So being on scene and being able to be with first responders gives me a lot of insight into symptoms and triggers and events and decompensation. And so there's a lot of benefit to us being in the car rather than responding afterwards. Because, I mean, you're right, time comes de-escalation and, and resolvement of that crisis. And but that resolvement doesn't always mean that the crisis is not going to happen again shortly. And then the beauty of this is that law enforcement, I, I feel law enforcement has been criticized for not responding 
well to these calls or that they shouldn't respond to these calls. And I think I get the sense that law enforcement would rather not respond to these calls. You know, you're a law enforcement officer, you're there for criminal behavior, for people's safety, but you're not a clinician. So this has to take some of the burden off of you as a police officer. It's definitely gives us greater insight and making, getting that person where they need to go. Uh, Before it'd be, let's just take them to jail. We've got a crime. Let's just book them into jail. And that, that doesn't, that's not going to help anything. But if we're able to interact, even if they do uh, end up going to jail and we have that critical information of say, they tell us who their counselor is, or they tell us, just kind of give us some insight. We can call jail mental health. We can give them a call and give them the information we can call their counselor so their counselor can at least follow up with them. Uh, you know, hey, I heard you had a rough day. We want to see if we can get it, you know, ahead of that to make that not happen again. There's a lot of advantages. You had said we had talked about these diversion centers and the and a lot of people are calling for people not to be taken to jail who are experiencing mental crisis. Your unit, your model is an opportunity to try to keep them out of jail, to try to keep them out of the hospital. You mentioned diversion centers. So for people who don't know what those are, what is a diversion center? A diversion center, which is we also call a stabilization center. So if there's Mm -hmm. a mental health aspect or a uh, substance use aspect, they can go there and receive treatment. And it's typically a couple days. And depending on the need of the client, they can stay for a couple of days and, and be discharged in the community, or they can stay more than a couple of days and be discharged to a different treatment facility. Um, so it really depends on what that individual is needing. But um, yeah, you know, one of the, our biggest goals in this unit is jail and hospital diversion and centers like this provide both that because you're not taking up room at the emergency department. And then we're also providing services rather than taking them to jail. And how do people react to you, Jenny, when you show up on scene? Oh, you know, it's really hit or miss. <laughs> yeah. Um, some people just hear the word mental health and it's immediate escalator. Um, oh. Other times, you know, they, they, they do appreciate having that mental health piece in the car and they feel comfortable in sharing what's going on with me. Uh, so a lot of the times I'll kind of assess what type of reaction I'm going to get before saying like, I'm a mental health clinician, you know, other, you know, other times I'll introduce myself as a social worker because sometimes that takes away some of that mental health, you know, stereotype that a lot of people have been given throughout their lifetime that have mental health conditions. And I try to do a little bit of an assessment before introducing who I am. Um, and, and Stacy's always really great at that. And I think that really helps our dynamic. Um, Stacy's always the first one to introduce us and who we are and we're the behavioral health unit. And this is my partner, Jenny. And, you know, from there I can kind of determine whether I jump right into the mental health talk or I kind of let the client lead the way and, and navigate that way. And you said in our pre-interview that sometimes people just want to talk to the police. Yeah. You know, and, and honestly, that was something that was kind of surprising when I started this job. There are times where I show up on scene and they're like, I don't want anything to do with you. Give me the cop. And and luckily I have a partner that can handle that. You know, he 
like he said, we've been doing this long enough that the questions I would ask, he's asking. And if there's something he's missing, I'll kind of, you know, chip in. And at this point, we're really good at about reading each other's body language. And if there's something that I would like to kind of get involved in, Stacy's great at recognizing that and, and giving me that space to do that. That's great. Do you agree or does it just simply vary by person that people in crisis do sometimes get triggered by the police uniform, the gun, the gear? Do you find that to be, this is what a lot of people claim anyway, is that police shouldn't be showing up because it's triggering to people. Is that true? Do you find that you know, I do think it, it really is dependent on the person and situation. I would say a majority, well, I would say a lot of the calls that we respond to are people calling into 911 themselves. Oh, really? Um, so they're already calling 911. They're already expecting a police response. And so sometimes I'm the surprising piece to the call. But I don't know if Stacey's had a different experience, but I would I would say it's really, I, I, I can't say that every person we respond to is it doesn't want police there um, or is it's thrown off. Yeah. yeah. I was on a, like a community zoom meeting and there was a police officer on the call and someone was asking her, you know, why do police go to calls of people in crisis? They shouldn't go at all. Or if they go, they shouldn't be armed. And it's like, well, a police officer can't show up in uniform and not be armed. <laughs> People just don't seem to understand. And also sometimes when the call comes out, you don't know it's a mental health, a person in crisis, right? So yeah, not always, not always. You don't always know. And like Jenny said, they, they're either calling themselves or a family member is calling because things have gotten to the point where uh, it's not manageable for them. And they kind of need a calm in the storm. And, you know, I think it's, and it's all about how you present yourself. The biggest thing for us is we, we want to have some compliance uh, because I'm not, I don't feel good about bringing Jenny or anybody into a totally chaotic situation, you know? So if there's compliance and things are going good, you know, then, then we kind of have, they know the police are coming or they, they know that, you know, their, their call initiated our response. When you say someone calls 911 themselves, so they're experiencing some sort of, they know they're experiencing a crisis? Yeah. They recognize themselves that there is a, there's an issue or they're feeling suicidal or they had a, had an argument that triggered them. And, you know, we've had people call and specifically request us to, to come because, they want to talk or they want to get into stabilization. I did want to bring up another term, which we've referenced a few times, and that's DCR, a designated crisis responder. How does that differ from what you do, Jenny? Yeah, so they, they're they MHP that has the certification through the state to do the involuntary treatment acts. So they conduct evaluations on individuals and determine if they need to be involuntarily hospitalized due to uh, dangerous self-danger to others or grave disability. And that's not something you do? No. Yeah. As an MHP? Okay. Yeah, that is correct. And then, Stacey, in our conversation, you talked about sometimes the DCRs will call the two of you. Yes. Right. And so what what is that scenario? 
they're getting calls about someone and they know how, why can't they handle it? Why did they call you? They call us because either it's in, say it's in an apartment building downtown that they just don't feel uh, comfortable going in, or there has been a history of violence with the client. So having uh, law enforcement there while they do say an evaluation or they do determine that this person needs hospitalization. They just want to take out that, you know, if somebody's displaying assaultive behaviors or has a history of assault, they, they want law enforcement there. And we go just that extra blanket of having Jenny there for seeing what's going on, hearing what's going on, interjecting when you need to. It's all about evaluating and making sure that the person in need goes to the right place. And Jenny, when you talk about what, what insights have you gotten on law enforcement? I mean, you're basically doing a ride along every day. <laughs> you know, I, I've done many, but, uh, and it's always eye opening. What have you learned about law enforcement? I think the biggest thing that I've learned is the expectations for these guys are incredibly high. They're the last resort and the catch all for basically everything. People in the mental health field that their last resort is to call 911 and have police go check on someone. So the expectation and problem solving that they're expected to do is is in- incredibly high. And I've always been, you know, really impressed with people that I've ridden with and the things that I've seen and the amount that they've taken on and and really try to navigate the system without the training that, you know, as a mental health professional, I'm, I'm given. And I still have a hard time navigating the system sometimes. You kind of have to keep in mind too, we just finished with a pandemic, right? Or we still are in whatever your the case may be, but we were the only ones still making those calls. And there were people that needed that face-to-face interaction or face-to-mask, whatever, you know, they were done trying to have meet with their counselor on a Zoom call. They were calling us because they needed that interaction. And we, you know, we provided that. We were the only ones that were out there still making house calls. So, and DCRs, DCRs were as well, but they were, uh, we were being really utilized for those contacts during that time. Interesting. I think we talked about this, but Jenny, do you see a increase in mental health issues? Are we in a mental health crisis or is it just that we are more aware of mental health issues? You know, I've only been in Spokane for three years, so I don't want to speak to the history within Spokane, but I I do think that there is a significant amount of people who are having psychotic symptoms due to drug use. And that's something we see a lot. So I was thinking maybe, you know, where Stacy was going with the pandemic and COVID, maybe COVID having played a role in this mm-hmm. isolation, but. Yeah, you- I think that, that, that there's truth to that. I think we were dealing with people who weren't seeing their provider face to face. They lost contact with their clinician so they stopped taking their medications, decompensated a lot. We did experience a lot more people with some suicidal ideations uh, due to that isolation. You definitely, I think we're still kind of picking up the pieces of those who got lost during the pandemic and stopped seeing their providers. 
you know, mental health has no, no barriers here. So there it's anyone is affected. And that's what I think a really eye opening thing about this position is one we're we're county wide. So we're seeing people in every different kind of living situation. There's no, uh, you know, salary range of mental health here, right? Like, um, right. And, and I had said, I anticipated that your clientele would be largely homeless, but Stacy said, no, that is not, I mean, certainly this is, ex- is, is occurring in the homeless population, but it is not limited to. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think about the term behavioral health. I keep saying mental health. I assume behavioral health is a broader term than mental health, right? Behavioral health is just kind of all encompassing because we, we deal with every kind of diagnosis you could imagine. Like what? Schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, autism, major depression, anxiety, PTSD. We deal with individuals that are developmentally delayed, um, oppositional defiant disorder. Um, and, you know, we're, 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 we're getting calls for kids, you know, kiddos that are six years old, up to people who are older and, and having dementia symptoms and mm. Alzheimer's. So, Well, you mentioned autism. There seems to be quite a bit of effort in awareness around dealing with people with autism. Stacy had touched on in our conversation, interacting with kids with autism so they know what a police officer is. They know, you know, also, I guess it's helpful to the officers to understand how an autistic person, and not everyone experiences autism the same way. So but there seems to be a lot of awareness around that. Like I said, we we have a couple of different organizations that we are able to kind of go and they explain to autistic children that, you know, this is this is a police officer and when they have these tools, we don't hug, we high five or we do a fist bump and they explain that with say ambulance personnel, firefighters, but the the one thing that they emphasize is the firefighter will put on all their, you know, all their mask and their uh, air tank and all their, uh, you know, their bunker gear, I guess it's called. And at that point, all the kids get to hug the firefighter because they don't want them, you know, because a firefighter is in that gear in a house or in a structure or whatever. They don't want them running away and being scared. They want them to know that that is that is a safe time. To, to be with the firefighter, you know? So yeah, that's, that's always a good experience. I think that you can, everybody should in this role uh, should experience because they are. So if they have a remote control in their hand and you say, drop the phone, they're not going to drop that because it's not a phone, it's a remote control. And those are some of the things if you recognize that somebody is autistic. Interesting. Very interesting. Which also leads me to going back to some of the calls you respond to. So there have to be situations that are dangerous. Let's say it's a domestic violence or someone is in mental crisis, but they have a knife, right? So do you respond to calls like that? Yeah, we'll respond with patrol where we can help out. Yes, absolutely. So, for example, would you see somebody who's armed, Jenny, and try, or I guess it's up to the officer to try to get them to drop the weapon, or do you get involved in that conversation? No, I I do not. Um, So I will stand back from the scene or stay in the car until basically all safety stuff is taken care of. 
Um, if it's a negotiation type thing like that, I can provide support by looking up someone's history and providing information, which is, you know, that's been pretty useful. Uh, Stacy's a negotiator. And so there's been times where we've been on calls that I've done that. But as far as speaking to someone as they're active with a weapon or standing on a bridge, that's something that, you know, is completely up to police. And then I, I just step in afterwards. To the people who say just let the mental health professionals respond to these calls, P- police shouldn't be responding to those people. What do you say? I think it's a lot easier to say that if if you're not there on scene, at least in our community, there's not a, a mental health team that's going to respond to an active crisis like that, because there are some serious safety risks. As a civilian, I'm not trained to address those safety risks. You know, I think it's a very ideal way of dealing with people in crisis. But unfortunately, in some of the challenges that we have today, including not knowing if someone is only experiencing a mental health symptom or if it's a mental health and a drug or alcohol-induced symptom, people can be very unpredictable when there's substances involved. I, I wear a ballistic vest because I'm with police, but the extent of the training I have as far as being able to manage a, a safety situation, it's it's limited. And these situations can be dangerous. They can, yeah. Have you two been on a call that has gone sideways and you've had to flip the script and Jenny has to get off scene? Um, I'm thinking that there was a, we were with DCRs and there was one uh, subject that became combative. Yeah, that that's happened where someone has been combative and I, you know, I immediately step back and, and let officers do what they need to do to make sure people are safe. I don't know if there's ever been a time where things have gotten extremely serious. Um, no. There's been times where I'm like waiting for this person to explode but you know stacy is managing the the chaos just verbally and every time i'm like oh my god (laughs) i'm terrified but yay stacy (laughs) (laughs) well then you know this goes speaks to officers crisis intervention training de-escalation training all the things they are accused of not doing they actually do they're quite good at (laughs) yeah no i mean it's it's amazing to watch some of these officers and the way that they, they are able to just verbally de-escalate individuals that are, um, and, and, and I think too, one of the things that just being a female, you know, and, and not in law enforcement, there are times that it is more appropriate for Stacy to step in and do that de-escalation. Cause I know as going back to the safety piece, you know, I've had people say some incredibly inappropriate things that, there's a chance that if officers were not there, things would have been very, a, a different situation would have would have happened. Well, maybe it would be helpful to talk about s- some stories, some scenarios. I think, can you share some success stories or some typical calls? Yeah. A- another one that we thought would be a good example is this older female who lives alone. A friend called in wanting a welfare check done. She said she hadn't heard from this friend in a while and she was worried about some dementia symptoms. So we went and immediately noticed that the backyard of this home, the, the front of it was, you know, it's a very nice 
organized home, the backyard was just completely full of items. So immediately we're recognizing this is a hoarding issue. I could see in my system that other people had attempted to outreach this person for similar concerns. Family had called into the crisis line requesting that they go do a mental health evaluation. And uh, every time they had done an outreach, she would not answer the door or she would only open the main door and speak through a locked screen. So she wouldn't allow anyone into the house. Um, when Stacy and I arrived, I think just Stacy, you know, being in uniform and her recognizing that it's police, she surprisingly let us in the home. We again notice it it's very much a hoarding situation and there were some dementia concerns. And so just being able to get in the home and and do a face-to-face assessment with her and recognizing some risk, one of which uh, we didn't know she had heat in the home, that just made us automatically call Adult Protective Services and, and get them involved. And Adult Protective Services then gets her on someone else's radar. So she's not just on her own experiencing dementia, possibly living in a home with no heat. In a situation like that, if you didn't have the behavioral health unit, they would call 911 maybe for a welfare check. And then you've got what options do police have in that situation? Law enforcement responses, you're going to probably go to go to the house, knock on the door, maybe knock on a window, try to see if there's any movement inside or, you know, uh, is the mail being picked up? Is the paper stacking up? Is there car in the driveway that, you know, is there a phone number we can call or if we have any other means of contact. And if we don't contact somebody and we don't see anything exigent, like we need to force our way in there, we're, we're just going to walk away. So if they don't answer their door, because I mean, you don't have to, you know, yeah. so, you know, we would, we would walk away. Uh, I think in this situation now, We'll be able to go back and see, wait, Baver Health was out there and she did answer the door and there were some concerns. There was a referral to APS. There was, you know, so it kind of gives us a little more to go off of that might elevate our concerns a little more uh, if we have to go out there again for a welfare check or something. And the one thing we also talked about is that you, you get to spend more time on these calls because you're not going call to call to call. You're able to spend more time than, say, a patrol officer who's out there with calls stacking up. So that's helpful, too. And then what you're talking about is the ability to follow up, which is not something patrol gets to do. Very true. Yeah. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. There's still, as we're on calls, either radio saying, hey, here's another one for you, or patrol guys are saying, hey, we're, we go by George units. Uh, they're asking, are there George units available? Because they're on something that they feel also needs our call. But yeah, we do have the luxury of not being so call driven. We are driven by results. You know, if a patrol guy spends 10 minutes, normally we're spending 25 to 30 minutes making sure that we have that result that we want. And I think I had asked you in the pre-interview, I don't know if I asked you in your interview, how you know when it's a call that you should be going to. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we kind of call shop. Uh, We look at the screen and as they come up, I think it just comes with experience. And I kind of defer to Jenny. Well, one of my concerns had been, I thought that it would be, the, the onus would be on dispatch to figure out which calls to send you to, but you're, that is not the case. 
you're able to, based on how the calls come out, you, you have a f sense of where you should, you're, you're nodding Jenny. So is that the case? Yeah, it's, it's both, you know, dispatch kind of does their own screening. And if it's something that goes directly to us, they'll, me they'll message us. Like we're constantly looking at the board to see what calls are coming through and, you know, anything that has a mention of suicide or self-harm, even wanting to harm others or a welfare check that someone is off medications. You know, we mentioned people calling 911 themselves. And so that's right. one that we, we get a lot is someone is calling 911 saying something that's apparent is a delusion. So the FBI is hacking my phone, that fumes are coming through my window or there's ghosts in my TV. And so those are things that just kind of perk your ears. And you mentioned suicide. So you, you do respond to, because Stacey, you're also a negotiator. So where is the line there between when it would be, you know, a negotiator call out or a call, uh, you're responding or do you both respond? Uh, yeah, I've dragged Jenny along on several negotiator callouts <laughs> where uh, one that I can think of, we were negotiating for nine hours. There's been times where we'll jump in with SWAT and we'll be doing our thing. So just the other day, we were on our way to a, a suicidal call and they put it out as a barricaded person. They needed H&T. So we are off the suicidal call and now we're on this barricaded person call. And again, it, we use the same, utilize the same resources. We're trying to find one ways to contact this person to, you know, let's get some insight into their, into their mental health. And, you know, what, what are some of the triggers that are going to set them off? What are some of the things they like to talk about? So when we do get this person on the phone, we're able to move right into kind of active listen to see what, what they're barricaded about and kind of, you know, build that rapport with them. And it's very valuable. And Jenny, do you get involved in those negotiations or that's strictly police negotiation? Yeah. So these are situations where um, I wouldn't ever be speaking directly to the individual, but I would, if there's a history, I would be you know, going through their chart and providing any kind of helpful information. Um, and typically that's diagnosis. If there's a safety plan, what does that safety plan look like? Who does it include? If there's a history of treatment, like, and that helps officers build rapport. Well, it seems like this is a ideal model. Uh, I assume it costs money, right? That you you have city councils and civilians calling for defunding of some departments because they don't want police going to these calls. But in fact, the better scenario is this, where you go with this kind of model and you can be successful, but it can't be, there has to be a cost to it, right? We're grant funded initially. Uh, we, we work off of a WASPIC grant. Oh, right. You did mention that. But it does seem like an ideal setup and possibly the future of policing. Do you see it that way? I see us definitely there's a need. There's still, there's a need for all, you know, everything that we do, you know, I mean, uh, we've found here that if you take away something that goes up, you know, uh, you take away your motor unit and crashes go up, you take away your, your anti-crime teams and, and crime goes up. There's just so many needs that I, I guess the, the public needs to decide, you know, what, 
what is it that we want? I mean, Jenny, you would, what do you think? You think you find this rewarding? What I've asked, got to ask Stacy in his interview, what the rewards of his career have been for him. What are the rewards for you? You know, I love this job and I don't say that lightly. It's a job where some days are really, really hard. And then other days you can actually see the difference that you're making in someone's life and being able to be that intervention, you know, on scene is something that I think a lot of mental health professionals don't get to experience. So yeah, you know, I, I, I do think it's a evolving concept that's going to continue to grow and should, because I think some of the things that officers are tasked with are better put on you know, people like me that have gone to school specifically for this purpose and, and have the knowledge of resources and treatments and diagnosis. And so, yeah, you know, it is a, it's a very rewarding job and I'm very appreciative that I have the opportunity to work with, you know, someone that's so open to having me in the car. The perfect job that you didn't know you wanted is what I think you said earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, um, there's a national uh, co-responder, co-deployed conference that's going to be going on in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And Jenny's presentation was selected. So we have the the peas and carrots of a co-deployed team as our our talk. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so we're just going to be up talking about this exactly. So that's for other law enforcement agencies? Correct. Yeah. That's great. Sharing best practices. It's definitely working for us. Well, I really appreciate both of you, not just your time today, but what you do. I mean, I, I really think you are making a difference in people's lives. Thank you. And and thank you for wanting to talk with us and and learn a little bit more about it. Yeah. Now, now once this is uh, out there on the airways, we could say we're nationally recognized on the On Being a Police Officer podcast. There you go. Well, thanks. I mean, I I really think the fact that law enforcement is open to this and supportive of this speaks volumes. I would agree. Well, thanks again, both of you. Okay. Well, we appreciate your time and uh, we look forward to hearing this thing. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. And as always, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. And I always like hearing from you. So if you'd like to email me, I'll have my email address in the written description of the episode. Thanks again for tuning in.